Hello, and welcome to the Strategic Podcast from the Hoover Institution, analyzing the intersection of military history and contemporary national security concerns. You can find us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. I'm your host, Troy Sinek, and today we'll be examining the topic of the most recent issue of Strategica, Does Political Correctness Pose a Threat to the Military? And we are joined today by the author of one of the essays in this issue, Thomas Donnelly, co-director of the Maryland Ware Center for Security Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. Tom, thanks for joining us. Uh, I'm glad to be here. All right, so let's start here. In terms of uh, elite society, we seem to have gone all in on political correctness, especially on college campuses and in certain parts of the media. Any signs that that mindset has infected the American military? I don't think uh, that it's changed life for people in uniform all that much, but um, I do think that people in uniform probably feel increasingly estranged from, uh, you know, cutting-edge elite uh, culture, as you say, particularly on the campuses and in um, uh, the the so-called mainstream media, the elite media. Uh, to what do you attribute the fact that it, it doesn't seem to have taken hold in the military in quite the same way? Well, I mean, uh, the military is kind of unique subculture um, that remains remarkably cohesive. There's no question that uh, there have been changes, uh, certainly formal changes. Um, uh, if you're talking about equal opportunity in uh, in the military or the role of women or the acceptance of open homosexuality in the military. But it does not seem to have fundamentally changed uh, the sort of uh, culture, the military culture that provides cohesiveness um, uh, inside military life. Uh, You know, in many ways, um, the traditions of the military are, are proving, if not immune to those currents, at least more resistant uh, and able to subsume these changes in ways that don't so change the underlying sort of baseline culture, if you will, uh, as they have done um, in American society, or at least, again, elite society. We need to, American society is a pretty diverse uh, thing right. uh, itself, uh, but, uh, uh, you know, of the sort that so predominates um, on television and on other forms of the media. To the point you made a moment ago, you say in your piece at Strategica that the military seems to have dealt pretty well with the integration of openly gay members into the service. In Wick Murray's piece in this series, he says pretty much the same thing about bringing women into the armed services. And Tom, the knock has always been – in fact, you heard in a different context, but you heard Mike Huckabee say it at a recent presidential debate that the military ought not to be a vehicle for – Social experimentation. That's kind of the catchphrase. I I wonder what you think about that sentiment though given the fact that there seems to be a fairly high rate of consensus among strategic contributors in this issue that when it has been used that way, it actually seems to go pretty well. It seems to be pretty effective. Yes, but it's not – you know, it's never been a laboratory for experimentation. Um, Right. You know, uh, um, it's more been – not a trailing edge indicator, but as as you know, the the center of gravity shifts 
uh, in American public life. Uh, we notice it more because in the military it's controlled by regulations and it's more like an on-off switch. Uh, you will now treat gay soldiers like any other soldiers, um, and they kind of salute and do so. I mean, really, the most one of the most extraordinary things of the last couple of years to me has been the way in which women in uniform have responded uh, in, you know, it's wrong to call it reactionary, but in a very uh, uh, sort of um, getting their spines up sort of a way to the uh, attempt to take um, prosecution of sexual harassment and assault out of the military chain of command. Um, I mean, this is certainly true in my experience, anecdotally talking to uh, women service members, uh, but, but certainly the um, expert literature also seems to bear this out. That, And I, th I think this may be analogously uh, true for, uh, for gay soldiers, is that they really don't want to be seen as victims. Victimization has become such a central part of popular culture. Uh, you know, it seems like Everybody's trying to out-victim everybody else on a day-to-day -day basis. But that is really anathema to the military ethos. And, uh, again, I think uh, – and, and I think it's also probably true for African-American and Latino soldiers as well. They put on the uniform as a way to assimilate and to become accepted and validated as full-fledged Americans. Uh, and that – you know, that's uh, – uh, an ethos that's increasingly out of step uh, uh, in our current society. So is it fair to say on that front when you, you brought up the issue with women in the military, there has been this big concern, especially on Capitol Hill, about sexual assault and sexual harassment in the services and that, as you mentioned, the, the proposed remedy that seems to have gotten the most traction there is to take what the proposal is to take the investigation and the prosecution of those incidents out of that traditional legal framework in the military, out of the chain of command, is I mean, you mentioned sort of the the temperamental reaction that women in the um, women in the service sort of bridle at that idea. Is it is it fair to say that they also they just don't have the sense of alarm about it that people on Capitol Hill do? I mean, sometimes when you hear legislators handling this, they act as if this is sort of at crisis levels within the military. Well, you know. The statistics on such things, both in civilian life and in military life, uh, uh, are almost always wildly inflated by advocates. Uh, you know, uh, you know, but not to, to find a point on it by by left wing advocates. Um, and so, um, I would say, broadly speaking, that uh, people in uniform sort of have kept their heads in ways that civilian institutions and, again, universities seem to be the sort of most egregious uh, uh, and most terrified institutions uh, in this regard. Um, and, uh, you know, certainly, as, again, as best I can tell, as best the surveys uh, suggest, believe that their justice system, the military justice system, is quite adequate for dealing with things uh, that are, you know, prejudicial to good discipline or are actual crimes uh, and, and do not want a special 
uh, set of laws or regulations or, and certainly don't want uh, somebody from outside uh, being the judge and jury uh, in, in these cases. And again, using the campuses sort of as a stalking horse here uh, with the, the way in which, um, uh, you know, sexual assault and harassment has been a, has become a, um, it's even wrong to call it jurisprudence, but a set of an issue where uh, the accused has to prove his innocence rather than the other way around. Um, uh, you know, again, I think very much strikes people in uniform, especially women in uniform, as uh, uh, something that they want no part of. When we're talking sort of broadly about this issue of political correctness in the military, to what extent, if any, is there is there a distinction between how sort of your your everyday troop feels about these issues and maybe sort of senior military who have by nature of their job to function a little bit more in the political orbit, or are these things pretty consistent up and down throughout the service? Um, I, I think that uh, you know people at the highest levels, that you know, especially like service chiefs and so forth, uh, you know, who whose job it is to intersect with politicians, um, uh, you know, they're the ones who tend to make the most uh, gaffes and mistakes and say the silliest things uh, to try to square this circle. And they probably get mocked, uh, you know, sort of at the squad level, uh, you know, sort of in ways that um, have always been the case for soldiers. The the uh, literary critic and, and former soldier uh, Paul Fussell once wrote a great essay on military chicken shit, if I can use that term in a family setting like this, <laughs> and, and uh, meaning you know sort of bureaucratic silliness and organ you know the organizational excesses uh, of of not only the military but many large organizations, and I tend to think that a lot of this again sort of in that you know when people are sitting around uh, in the motor pool or on the flight line, uh, falls into that category. Right. And, and you may have intuited this, but the, the instance I had in mind when I framed that question for you was a few years ago after the Fort Hood shooting when General Casey made the statement that no. as horrific as the tragedy was, if diversity becomes a casualty, I think that's worse. Yeah. I mean, he probably regretted it you know, shortly after he said it. Uh, but that is, I think, more a disease of the senior leadership, the Washington-based leadership in particular, um, you know, sort of trying to be deferential uh, to the, you know, uh, curious morality of... Uh, uh, modern American elites and being sort of tongue-tied and inarticulate um, um, in, in ways that fundamentally don't mean that much, right. uh, but are profoundly embarrassing and subject them to mocking and worse. I mean, it's, in a case like the Fort Hood shooting, because of the terribleness of the incident and the clear fact that it was 
a terrorist-inspired attack. Um, you know, that one is particularly, you know, proves to be a great exemplar because it's, um, you know, you know uh, so sort of insensitive to not simply, uh, you know, the military ethos, but, you know, also strikes uh, a chord that's long resonated uh, about how to deal with um, an extremist Muslim enemy um, and matters of faith um, in these conflicts. Uh, you know, so it's sort of like a double whammy, and General Casey just, you know, stepped in it. Let me wrap up today by posing you a question that I'm giving to everybody who's writing in this issue because you zeroed in earlier in our conversation on a point that is made throughout this series, this enormous cultural gap in modern America between the military and the rest of society. The suggestion that you see oftentimes – first of all, that, that gap doesn't get covered in the press all that often but – when it does come up, it seems like the only tangible thing that anybody ever suggests is reinstating the draft. But you know, a lot of people who care about the military um, don't like that option for a number of you know practical reasons, apart from these ideological ones. My question for you: I, first, I'd, I'd like to get you to respond to that proposal. But barring that, apart from the draft, is there a reasonable way to bridge this divide between the armed forces and the rest of American society? Uh, I, I think the draft idea is. Is really an anti-war argument, yeah. masquerading as a civil-military argument. But you're quite right about the gap. Um, just to plug another forthcoming Hoover uh, product, um, uh, 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 Orshaki and Jim Mattis are editing a volume on civil-military affairs based on some polling that they commissioned, and one of the uh, research findings that very much struck me was that um, a, a majority of Americans, like almost 80% of Americans, believe that military service um, has sort of deranging effects, uh, traumatic effects. Wow. Uh, it, the, the trope of the psychologically, and not just physically, but psychologically injured veteran has very much penetrated and become sort of a way in which, you know, again, elite society in particular has turned um, uh, people in uniform from heroes into victims in, in just a really striking way and in numbers that were quite shocking to me. So this divide is, is not just a political divide. It is a real cultural divide. And I think it is the rest of us who have changed much more than uh, than that people in uniform have. They've stayed sort of more or less the same and we are drifting away from them. And that's, I, I think that's, that's bad. It's really up to particularly the leadership elite uh, and, the, and, you know, the president and Congress, you know, people who actually are responsible uh, for committing the, the American military to battle and to providing for it to, to do what it takes to cross that divide, to understand how the, what military life is like, how it works, how, what, you know, 
not that they all need to go to war, but they they can learn this intellectually and get a uh, you know a sort of fingertip feel for it simply by observing it. I I learned you know what I learned by being a military reporter, um, and I found that interviewing soldiers is about the easiest thing I ever did uh, <laughs> as a journalist. I mean, getting a soldier to talk is uh, all you had to do is turn on your tape recorder. So they're very open to sharing their views and lives and explaining to people who just simply need to take the time to stop, look, and listen. But uh, that doesn't happen as much as it needs to. All right. My guest has been Thomas Donnelly, co-director of the Maryland Ware Center for Security Studies at the American Enterprise Institute and a member of Hoover's Military History Working Group. You can read his essay and those by other members of the group by visiting us online at hoover.org forward slash strategica. That's S-T-R-A-T-E-G-I-K-A. Tom, thank you for being with us. My pleasure. For the Hoover Institution, I'm Troy Senek. Thanks for listening. You've been listening to Strategica, and I'm Victor Davis Hanson. <laughs>